Good evening and welcome to the show. Well, the Australian government will spend about $75 million this year on a referendum asking voters whether they approve of an Indigenous advisory panel being formally incorporated into the Constitution. So far, the debate has been about whether the voice to Parliament will do anything to improve the lives of Australia's most disadvantaged people. It won't and whether it will permanently skew federal decision-making towards the interests of a noisy, perpetually whining minority. It will. But the true motivation behind this idea has so far not been scrutinised at all. It springs from the Uluru Statement from the Heart, written in 2017, which says, in part, we seek constitutional reforms to empower our people and take a rightful place in our own country. When we have power over our destiny, our children will flourish. They will walk in two worlds and their culture will be a gift to their country. Announcing the wording of the referendum last week, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese tearfully said... Consultation through the voice is about strengthening Parliament's understanding, not supplanting its authority. It won't take decision-making power away from government or Parliament, but it will help governments and parliaments make better decisions and achieve better outcomes. And we urgently need better outcomes because it's not good enough where we're at in 2023. The common thread here is the supposed inability of the Australian government, as it stands, to understand the hopes and dreams of its most disadvantaged people. These people are not only the women and children being bashed and raped by the men, often their relatives, in outback communities, but also the men themselves who have grown up being paid by the government to sit around doing nothing and therefore live empty lives utterly devoid of purpose or meaning. For almost all of Australia's brief history, the solution to this problem has been simple. Break up families where kids are being abused send those kids to loving, stable homes and make sure they attend school, and offer young Indigenous people jobs that give, in, give them, to paraphrase the Uluru statement, power over their destiny so they can flourish. Indeed, this isn't proved only by Australia's history. Human history confirms this to be, in the most dire circumstances, the most reliable way to pull people out of destitution and deprivation. But in this era of cultural relativism, those solutions don't apply anymore. Whatever the Uluru Statement means by power over our destiny, it's got little to do with solutions that were once considered both plausible and universal. The frightening thing is that the Prime Minister agrees with them. He wants to listen to Indigenous advisers because, by his own admission, he can't come up with effective solutions for them by himself.
it is impossible to understate how depressing it is for the leader of Australia to think so little of our history and our current ability to solve the problem of Indigenous disadvantage. It would, it would help if the proponents of The Voice would offer some hint as to what sort of recommendations the advisory panel would make, but they don't. Instead, the Uluru Statement concludes with this invitation. We invite you to walk with us in a movement of the Australian people for a better future. Well, it might be a heartfelt invitation, but it's not a very enticing one. What does this better future look like? And how will we walk there? They don't say. Moreover, would this better future be superior to the one modern Australia could create without an Indigenous voice to Parliament? After all, our record of creating opportunity and prosperity from virtually nothing so far is exceptional. The sandy beach in Sydney Harbour, where Arthur Phillip ordered the Union Jack to be hoisted 235 years ago, is now Circular Quay, one of the busiest places in Australia, home to the stunning world-famous Opera House on one side and the equally famous bridge on the other. Ferries and ocean liners come and go from the docks and tourists and commuters mingle happily in one of the most breathtakingly beautiful urban settings in the whole world. The nation that Australians have built in that time is nothing short of remarkable. The Oxford History of the British Empire, published in 2001, says Australia was, quote, the richest society in the world between the 1860s and 1890s, unquote. We are still one of the most envied and liked countries in the world, despite what politicians such as Scott Morrison Dan Andrews, Anastasia Palaszczuk, Mark McGowan and Michael Garner did during COVID to, to besmirch our reputation for good humour, courage and rugged resilience. The Uluru Statement makes some conciliatory noises towards modern Australia, but it is, more importantly, based on the idea that their land was stolen from them, that sovereignty was never ceded and that dispossession has given them a, quote, torment of powerlessness. <clears throat> well, try telling that to Royston Sagigi Baira, the indigenous singer from the tiny town of Mapoon, way up on Cape York, who was voted by Australians on Sunday night as the winner of this year's Australian Idol. He is the latest example of an Indigenous brother or sister warmly embraced by Australians for having shown a little Aussie spirit and ambition. This is most of them. The people advocating for The Voice conveniently overlook the fact that an estimated 80% of Indigenous people never needed a constitutional advisory panel to help them achieve success or happiness in life. But worse, the advocates for The Voice misread Australian history as a deliberate attempt to steal land and in some cases commit what they call cultural genocide. My guest tonight is Professor Nigel Biggar, 
who is the Emeritus Regis Professor of Moral and Pastoral Theology in the Faculty of Theology and Religion at Oxford University. His latest book is called Colonialism, A Moral Reckoning, in which he meticulously analyzes the benefits and detriments of what was the British Empire. Professor Bigar is an ethicist, not a historian, which makes his analyses uniquely compelling. Professor Bigar, welcome to the show. Thanks, it's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, firstly, as you know, there is much debate in Australia at the moment about there never having been a treaty between the original settlers and the natives, which is then extrapolated into the conclusion that the British settlement was therefore an invasion. Now, let's start by discussing the first part of this claim. Was it even possible for the British to sign a treaty with the natives when they arrived on this continent in 1788? Um, it seems that um, the native peoples of Australia, the Aboriginals, didn't have the kind of political organisation or, or unity uh, that would allow the British to identify who was in charge uh, and to sign a treaty that would then then uh, have authority over relevant native peoples. Uh, so um, unlike in, in, in North America, for example, um, it, it wasn't uh, possible for British uh, 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 arrivals to uh, make agreements with, with native peoples in Australia. Well, so does it logically follow that? So we've established, therefore, that you know, it wasn't really possible for a treaty to be signed. But does it logically follow that in the absence of a treaty that Australia, that the Australian continent was therefore invaded and the land stolen? No, it doesn't follow um, uh, because I mean, Australia is a vast territory. Uh, there certainly were uh, uh, numbers of, of Aboriginal peoples living in habitable, ha habitable parts of, of the continent. But when Europeans first landed on the coast of Australia, um, large areas of it appear to them to be vacant. Um, and uh, so uh, it wasn't initially an invasion. Um, and then uh, secondly, uh, we, when you do get uh, settlements, uh, European settlements uh, established, um, I mean, the, the, the border between the settlements and the Aboriginal territories was, was unclear because many of the, of the Aboriginals were, were nomads. Um, there were uh, um, not many Aboriginal settlements, if any. Uh, and so um, it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't clearly an invasion. Uh, it wasn't intended to be an invasion. Um, over time, uh, Aboriginal peoples were displaced from territories where they had been accustomed to, to forage, um, and no doubt injustices were perpetrated, but, but oftentimes unintended. Um, and the injustices perpetrated uh, often happened because settlers went out ahead of colonial government. Um, one of the functions of colonial government, both in Australia and in Africa and in North America was to constrain um, the uh, settlers and to regulate encounters between settlers and Aboriginals. Yes, well, one of the worst examples or the most unfortunate incidents of that was in Tasmania. And we'll get to that in a second. But firstly, I just want to talk about in broader terms about the cultures we are talking about here. 
You're very frank about the differences between British culture and the cultures encountered by the settlers in various corners of the empire. You're very clear that no culture is perfect, but one sign of a superior culture is its ability to help other people. The British did this by introducing natives to farming and trade and, and even ideas of equality and freedom. Is it fair to say that this was one of the guiding principles of the empire, the desire to help other people? Uh, yes, particularly from the early 19th century onwards. Um, uh, in the 1820s, 30s, 40s, uh, the British uh, began to talk about uh, an age of improvement. And there was a lot of confidence in the capacity to make progress. Um, a vaccine against smallpox had been invented. Um, ocean uh, uh, crossing ships had been uh, engineered. Um, and uh, in Britain in the 1830s and 40s, legislation was coming in to uh, help relieve the plight of, of industrial workers in early industrial Britain. So there's a lot of self-confidence, a lot of confidence that progress could be made. And often Britons were, were um, alarmed at the impact of uh, European settlement on Aboriginal peoples. Um, much of the, the negative impact was, was disease. And that disease was brought uh, to North America and to Australia uh, inadvertently. It wasn't spread deliberately. Um, and um, so colonial governors uh, and people back in London uh, scratched their heads as to, as to how to protect native peoples and enable them to adapt to the new world that was coming. And one idea was to, to um, protect them on reserves uh, where they could uh, uh, learn to adapt gradually. Um, but I, you're quite right. I, I'm quite frank about um, talking in terms of cultural and cultural superiority and inferiority, uh, not because I think that, that any culture is permanently and absolutely superior to another, but because it seems to me to be common sense that in some respects, at some times in certain places, uh, a given culture is in terms of technology or science or medicine or even uh, uh, liberal politics superior to another. And sometimes uh, the, the members of the inferior culture um, uh, recognize the values, the value of the advantages of the superior culture and want to um, adopt it. But inevitably, when they adopt uh, something, they also adapt it. So it's not, it's not simply a, an uncritical uh, um, receiving. It's also um, uh, 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 um, appropriated in a fashion that fits uh, native circumstances. Well, that's the view from the natives, for, for want of a better word, but for the view from the British settlers and the colonials themselves. I mean, you, you, you make the distinction that the British often sought to help natives because they saw it was, it was culture, not biology, that had prevented them from development. I think this is an incredibly important distinction because I, I believe it dispels the idea that the British Empire was essentially racist. Am I right? Yes, uh, Fred, it's, it's really important for us to pause and think about what we mean by racism. So, so racism as, as the contempt of one people for another, unfortunately, is a universal human vice, um, and it's, it's disgusting. Um, um, and there was, there was uh, um, too much of that in, in the British Empire. Um, but the most vicious form of racism is that which regards another people 
as uh, naturally, genetically, biologically inferior, and therefore forever destined to be ruled by an, another race. So, so, so the, the ideology of white supremacism would be an example of that. Um, but I, I'm, I'm pleased to report that although uh, scientific biological racism uh, did gain traction toward the end of the 19th century, it never displaced uh, the earlier uh, Christian view, uh, which had propelled the uh, movement to abolish slavery uh, and, uh, and the slave trade throughout the empire in the early 1800s. The Christian view that, that all human beings are basically equal regardless of race and regardless of cultural development under God. And uh, the prevailing view in the British Empire was that uh, native peoples under the right conditions could become quite as civilized, uh, uh, quite as developed as, as native, uh, native Britons. And so that's why uh, in Cape Colony, in South Africa, uh, and in New Zealand, and in Eastern Canada, um, from the 1850s onwards, uh, the vote is granted to native peoples on equal terms as to, as to, to white people. Well, the benevolence of the empire um, is is a is an incredibly provocative thing to talk about. The benevolence of the empire is very pro provocative these days. You also make the point in the book that no culture has a right to assume it can survive forever. Why have these ideas, which also is is you know perfectly reasonable if it's if it's not a very good culture, why have these ideas become so uh, anathema these days, Professor? Yeah, for just on, on benevolence, I mean, let me be clear, let, let's all be clear that the motives for British Empire were various and, and trade was, was the, the basic one. Um, but in, you're quite right, from the early 1800s, um, the humanitarian mission of the empire grew in strength. Now, why has that become so difficult to talk about now? Um, I think the, the basic reason is that... Um, you Australians and we British and New Zealanders and Canadians, we all share the same languages as the Americans. <laughs> so I think what's happened, uh, uh, certainly in my country, uh, this debate has, uh, uh, or the, the idea rather that um, British colonialism was nothing but a litany of racism and exploitation and, and gross violence. That's really taken off in the last two and a half years, ever since the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis and the the Black Lives Matter rapidly came across the Atlantic to us. Uh, and uh, oftentimes, to my irritation, and I speak as someone who's married to an American, um, we British seem to forget we're not American. <laughs> and the, his the history of race in Britain is, is quite different from Latin, Latin America. Now, Australia has, has had its own controversy. I'm aware, aware of that for some long time. But I, I do sometimes, uh, uh, I do think that the, the English-speaking parts of the world that are not America are often susceptible to um, American preoccupations, which has um, uh, shot this, this uh, view of uh, Anglo culture as essentially racist uh, right to the, to the centre of, of uh, public attention. Well, just bringing it back to Australia. Yeah, sorry to interrupt, but just bringing it back to Australia, the, um, and this is why I think your book is, is, is extremely pertinent in Australia right now, and that is that we seem to be uh, rewriting our history at the moment, and it's all within the context of this rather heated debate about whether or not to have a voice to parliament. 
And this voice to parliament, it's a, it's a panel of indigenous representatives, and it's meant to right the wrongs that were supposedly perpetrated at the start of our uh, the settlement, white settlement. Now, I think, I'd like to get your opinion on this. I think for us to rewrite our history like that is, is not only inaccurate, it's actually unethical because it is to deny some very disadvantaged people living in modern Australia the benefits of, of a Western liberal democratic society. We, aren't, we, we seem to be downgrading our own, what progress we've made in 235 years, and as a result, condemning some seriously disadvantaged people to live in deprivation forever. Is, am I right? Is it unethical to deny the benefits of Western liberalism? Yes, I think it is, and it's, it's also unethical to uh, develop any policy on the basis of a distorted reading of the past, which is certainly what's happening uh, in in uh, in Britain with the policies of decolonization, uh, a completely uh, um, distorted caricature of the past. Um, and whether in Canada or Australia, uh, the, the clamor for um, Aboriginal communities to have some kind of autonomy within the state. Um, um, I'm, I'm not an expert in this, Fred, but I've certainly read those who say that that is, that is a policy uh, that is, is that is destined to to deepen the the, the plight uh, of Aboriginal peoples because of of uh, it cuts them off from um, modern European civilization rather than enabling them to flourish within it. And of course, um, there are plenty of Aboriginal peoples in in North America and Australia who have become fully integrated and do flourish. Uh, but those who who uh, um, linger let's say, in, in reserves in North America, uh, often uh, suffer from uh, a political leadership that is corrupt um, and uh, suffer all sorts of deprivations because they are cut off from the mainstream. And the ideal within the empire, uh, as I say, uh, uh, from, from North America to Australia and, and New Zealand, was always to enable Aboriginal peoples, native peoples, uh, to assimilate and develop so that we they would become equal citizens. Indeed, uh, not separate, but equal citizens uh, in, in in a common polity. Indeed, and I'd argue that was always the intention from the moment they set foot on this continent. Uh, now, in your book regarding Australia, um, the most detail you go into is the uh, the plight of the Tasmanian Aborigines in the so-called Black War of eighteen twenty-five to eighteen thirty-two in which somewhere between 400 and 1,000 Aborigines perished. Now, this is often portrayed as an attempt at genocide. What was your finding, Professor? Uh, first of all, um, um, it is clear that colonial government uh, uh, um, was never responsible for anything like genocide. Uh, quite, the, quite the contrary, colonial government strove to protect Aboriginal peoples uh, from uh, from uh, um, settlers. Um, that's the first thing to say. Second thing to say is that, uh, and by the way, Henry Reynolds, who tends to be on the left in these matters, agrees with that. Um, he also agrees that genocide is not the appropriate word to use to describe what happened in, in Tasmania. Genocide, according to the uh, UN Convention, has to be intentional. And my view is that, that um, uh, genocide, the, the paradigm of genocide for 
for us is, of course, what happened in Europe in 1939 to 45, Auschwitz. It's 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 state-sponsored. It's systematic. It's designed to annihilate the people, um, and nothing like that happened in in Tasmania. Um, uh, Reynolds and some other historians argue that uh, exterminationist views were predominant among uh, uh, settlers, uh, but according to research I've done, uh, Keith Winchuttle's view uh, that exterminationist uh, attitudes among settlers was a uh, was only uh, true for a minority. I think is correct. Uh, so the situation was that that uh, most people, from the colonial governor down to most settlers. Um, uh, wanted to find some other way of uh, uh, settling uh, relations between uh, Europeans and and uh, Aboriginals uh, um, uh, uh, peacefully, um, and that genocide was, was was not something that most people intended. You also and the, the colonial government strove to to. Avoided. Yeah. Well, yes, I was just going to um, to add to that point that you just made. I mean, you, you're also very clear about the difference between the colonial authorities and the settlers. I mean, sometimes the settlers could get out of hand and act uh, not very well, but it was always the colonial authorities' intentions to keep them in check, and that's. You know that that was where the problems arose when the when the settlers went beyond the the, the authority of the of the colonial. Um, office or, or, you know, whoever was in authority. Let's just get back to you now, Professor, though, because there is an interesting backstory to this book. It was res the result of you being commissioned by Bloomsbury in 2018, but it's not published by Bloomsbury. What happened? <laughs> well, um, um, Fred, uh I, I, I signed a contract with Bloomsbury in, in uh, March, April 2018 to write an intelligent person's guide to colonialism, uh, produced the manuscript at the end of, end of 2020. Uh, my commissioning editor looked at it and he wrote back to say he was speechless with admiration for its rigor and comprehensiveness. He said it was a, an important book. He said that twice. He said it would sell 15 to 20,000 copies. Uh, it went into copy editing, uh, a cover was produced. And then in March of 21, I got a, an email from the top of Bloomsbury saying that they were uh, postponing, postponing publication indefinitely because public feeling was unfavorable. Um, I was told informally by my commission editor that this was because they wanted me to walk away from my contract. And I was also told uh, by a senior member of Bloomsbury that uh, what had happened was that junior members of the publishing company had uh, uh, lobbied senior management to, to, to cancel the contract. Um, so I, I, I decided, since I had no, no alternative at the time, I decided to play along and, and well, not to, to walk away from the contract uh, and to, to uh, ask innocent questions of Bloomsbury, such as, mm, there, there's lots of public feeling out there, folks. Which one are you worried about? And uh, <laughs> when would uh, conditions become favorable to favorable to publication. And of course, they didn't give me a straight answer and announced in April 2021 that uh, since I was clearly keen to get this book published sooner than they wanted to, they were going to return my contract. But I, I didn't give up even then. I I lost several hundred pounds paying a lawyer to try and, and find out if I could hold them to my contract only to discover that I couldn't. And then 
later in April 2021, I wrote to Bloomsbury to say, well, if you give me no option, I have to receive my contract back, but here's what I think of you. And most of all, I was, I was just distraught at the thought that a major British publisher wouldn't publish something that, that was regarded even by their own editor as important, really important, just because uh, younger members of the, of the company objected. Uh, that really depressed me. Yeah, but the good well, news is... Well, the good news is <laughs> it's published, yes, uh, yes. William Commons came along. Yes, well, yeah. um, good for them. Yeah, so now, William Collins published it in, in February. Well, you make some very interesting comments about the, uh, the motives of those who disparage Western liberalism. This is not unrelated to the point of you being cancelled by Bloom, Bloomsbury. And uh, these, these are the people who subscribe to intellectual fashions. There's a particularly nice sentence in it, which I'd like to quote. The intemperate ad personam hostility that many anti-colonialists are wont to show dissenters suggests deeper, sometimes darker springs. That's a lovely sentence, Professor. Have you peered into those springs? And if so, what did you see? Yes, well, I, I saw several things, things and I have to, to, to speculate here, but I, I have been struck, I mean, literally struck by, by venom on the part of uh, my critics, which initially puzzled me and now, and now makes me curious as to what on earth is driving someone to be venomous against someone like me whom they've never met. And I think I'm pretty reasonable, uh, and my, my reviewers on the whole think I'm pretty reasonable. So why the venom? Uh, a number of things. I, I think uh, there, there is the common human vice of we, we all love to crusade. We love to be righteous. We love to, uh, um, in a sense, lord it over other people morally. Makes us feel good. Uh, so for some reason, people have decided that people like me are wicked, and therefore we deserve whatever whatever aggression they send our way. It's partly that. Although I think I, I detected, a, um, in some cases, an element of hysteria and panic. Uh, and, and looking back, I think uh, part of their aggression against me was that they they uh, felt um, they intuited that uh, actually I was going to be a threat. I'm glad to say I had been a threat because the more I've looked at what they say, the less impressed I've become and the stronger I feel because I think that the whole complicated truth uh, of the British Empire, uh, the good bits as well as the bad, uh, is is manifestly true, uh, manifestly true. Um, the, the, the cardboard cutout uh, caricature that a lot of the illiberals are propagating is just false. Um, so there's that. And there's also, I think, a kind of perverse, degenerate Christianity going on here because it's as if the, the uh, anti-colonialists, they've, they've got the kind of the, the uh, ire of the Old Testament prophets against injustice. They certainly get that. Uh, but there's no sense at all that uh, um, sin and, and, and wrongdoing run right through the middle of all of us, uh, which is it, w those, those of us who are Christian and who recognize that we ourselves are flawed, uh, one effect of that is, is to constrain our attitude toward other sinners. We can't simply uh, 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 round on them with, with total aggression because they're like us. Um, so that there's, there's, I think there's, a, there's actually a spiritual dimension to this, this aggression. Uh, and it's it's not it's, it's not a it's not a good religion. <laughs> <laughs> well, as we often say on this show, Professor, the truth vindicates, and uh, in this case, the truth has vindicated you very well. It's a magnificent book. I recommend it to 
Everyone who's interested in the voice debate in Australia, Colonialism, A Moral Reckoning by Professor Nigel Bigger. Professor, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure, Fred. Thanks for the opportunity. That's Professor Nigel Bigard. Uh, he is the of Oxford University and author of Colonialism, A Moral Reckoning, which has profound resonance with the current debate in Australia about the Indigenous voice to Parliament. Well, that's all from me tonight. Thanks for watching. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can find me at at Fred Paul, that's F-R-E-D-P-A-W-L-E, or follow ADH on at A-D-H-T-V-A-U-S. Alan Jones is up at eight o'clock and you can catch all the latest from ADH's rapidly expanding lineup, including Alexandra Marshall, Daisy Cousins, David Flint, Nick Cater, Lyle Shelton and more by going to adh.tv or downloading our app. Or find us wherever you get your podcasts. ADH is the new home for common sense commentary and there's no shortage of things to comment about these days. I'll see you again tomorrow at 7pm. Good night.